a hero syndrome uh, describes someone who creates a, a desperate situation, uh, sometimes even criminally, so they can swoop in and save the day and receive recognition. Now, do you think just how devious this is for a minute? An individual will create absolute panic, will make everyone around them have the worst day possible. Fabricated, I might add. Just to get in the middle of it, to save the day, so everyone will look at them. So everyone will pay attention to them. If you think about just the kind of dastardly person who would think that they should create a scenario in society or in their family, in the church, to turn people's eyes to themselves. Well, if you might think, well, okay, pastor, that, okay, I get your point, but does this really happen? Well, if you're old enough, you actually remember, and I'm not old enough, so I only heard that I heard this from someone, that uh, in the 80s, Uh, there was an L.A. police officer who planted a bomb on one of the buses of the Turkish Olympic athletes. Does anybody remember this? Does anybody? Anybody? There's like one person. Good, good. Then it's all new to all of us. Uh, And he plants this bomb in, in one of the buses of the Turkish Olympic athletes. And then as they discover the bomb, he heroically runs into the situation, grabs the bomb. As he's running across the tarmac near the L.A. airport, he's just ripping all the wires out of the bomb. And he runs and he goes and disposes of the bomb uh, at a safe location. Uh, as the investigation went on to figure out where this, why this happened, who did it, uh, it came out and he confessed to planting the bomb. Now, his, his rationale and motive was uh, because he didn't feel that he was being appreciated enough and he wanted a, a promotion. He wanted to be transferred to a more uh, pleasurable place Uh, in the L.A. uh, police force. And so he said, there's no way they're ever going to move me from the Metro Police Department unless I show them that I matter, how important I am. Unless they value me, I will never get where I want to be. It turns out, after he's arrested, he spent time in prison, uh, it turns out that calling yourself a hero doesn't make you a hero after all. You and I, we may not be at risk of planting fake bombs in hopes of becoming a hero, but there is something that everyone who claims to know Christ, every disciple of Christ, uh, does have a temptation. And that temptation is this, that we can too easily become tempted to use the spiritual disciplines, that is, those things that we exercise like prayer, fasting, giving, uh, even things like your daily Bible reading uh, and things of the like, and use them as a ploy in hopes that as you utilize them publicly, people will recognize you as holier than you are, will recognize you as way more significant than them, as utmost, more important than they are. Like, how this guy is so holy, this gal is so holy that I could never amount to the ability they have to love God and to run after God. Really, this person is not doing much different than the L.A. police officer in fabricating a situation so that people will pay more attention to them than they do God. 
really for us this morning, we must ensure that our personal sacrifices to God are never exploited for the purpose of gaining others' praise and attention. And that's our main purpose as we're looking at the text, is that we got to make sure that the personal sacrifices we do, uh, our spiritual disciplines, which you recognize spiritual disciplines, are those disciplines which are meant to grow uh, you spiritually. Things that Jesus had been talking about in the Sermon on the Mount, like fasting and praying and, and giving. And, and these things ought not to be used and exploited for the purpose of gaining praise and attention from others, much like we see the hypocrites, the Pharisees, were using these frequently. Uh, if you haven't already, I want to encourage you to turn with me to Matthew 6, starting in verse 16, as we study the countercultural kingdom of God on the topic of fasting. Now, as you're turning there, uh, it'd be important to recognize the definition of fasting, uh, might I add, biblical fasting. We live in a crazy culture of, uh, of health and fad diets and things that, that may be super helpful, but to recognize something about biblical fasting is this. Biblical fasting, what you will find in Scripture as fasting, is defined as the practice of abstaining from food temporarily for the purpose of intensified focus and dependence on God. Now, if you didn't catch that, I'll say it again. Fasting is the practice of abstaining from food temporarily for the purpose of intensified focus and dependence on God. Now, this is important because it'd be really uh, significant for you and I to define this biblically because we do live in a culture uh, that wants to take things in Scripture and apply them in ways that may be fine and positive and helpful, but are not biblical. Uh, and we need to recognize that biblical fasting was not done for health reasons, nor were they utilized as diets in Scripture. Uh, fasting is maybe healthy for you, but it's not the point of biblical fasting. And as we look in this text, we're going to recognize that. Uh, really, fasting to lose weight, fasting for improved health, which your pastor would probably be all for that. And uh, science and culture would be, hey, let's do that. Let's make sure that we're doing things, taking care of our body. Just not the point of God's focus on the topic of fasting. So as we recognize and have an underlying foundation of fasting, let's turn to the text of Scripture. Turn your eyes there to verse 16. And Jesus says that when you, he's talking to his disciples, he's talking to those on the side of the sloping hill there by the Sea of Galilee, when you fast, here Jesus is expecting that disciples are regularly undertaking spiritual disciplines like fasting, like prayer, like giving. Uh, he's expecting that his followers, the people who love the Lord, are doing these things. And he's saying when you do them, there is a way in which you ought to do them. There's a way to exercise their, uh, spiritual disciplines, which comes to reason that there's also a way, as we will see, not to practice spiritual disciplines. And he uses the Pharisees as an example here uh, that they use spiritual disciplines like fasting for the purpose of gaining praise and attention from others. When it came to the Pharisees and it came to fasting, you can see in verse 16 exactly what Jesus is telling us not to do. When you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. If you want to underline the uh, imperative there, your second person imperative that Jesus is telling those around him, here's what I want you not to do. When, when you're exercising your spiritual disciplines, here's what you ought not to do. Do not look gloomy, right? Gloomy. 
is actually be do and gloomy. Right? Do not gloomy. Right? There's your underline that in your Bible. It would be really, really good for you to look at what Jesus is actually telling us to apply to our lives. As we're exercising spiritual disciplines, do not look gloomy. Because here is the reality of the Pharisees, if you've been with us through the Sermon on the Mount over the summer, which you've recognized as the Pharisees were taking things that God had designed for people's relationship to grow closer to him, and they have taken them and exploited it so that they would be self-focused and self-centered in hopes that people would notice them and give them praise here on earth instead of the praise that was supposed to come from God in heaven. And so you have these hypocrites, these Pharisees, and those who followed him would disfigure their faces so that their fasting may be seen by others. You know, the word hypocrite, like we've talked about before, uh, comes from the word actor. And you know any good actor in movies, they're really good at facial expressions, aren't they? As a matter of fact, there's exercises for actors to uh, learn how to utilize their face in a way that gets across to you the emotion or meaning behind what they're trying to convey to the audience. Uh, this is found very clearly in sci-fi movies where you have like people who have to put makeup on like aliens so that you would believe that that person is an alien. And they literally have to disconfigure their face with loads of makeup for you to believe they are something that they're really not. As much as you may look like an alien, you're just not an alien. And in the same way, we look at this text, Jesus is saying this about the hypocrites. As much as they disfigure their faces... Because they say they're fasting for the Lord, they're really not. As much as they're trying to get you to believe what they're doing is godly and pious and reverent unto the Lord, he's saying, I want to make very clear that what we see here are people who are living for themselves, giving self-centered worship, doing things for self-gratification, and they're not dependent on God, they're dependent on themselves and dependent on other people's praise for their actions. And Jesus says what is clear in the text, those hypocrites, I say to you, have received their reward. It's important to recognize the appeal uh, of praise from others. As a matter of fact, it's important for us to recognize there is a biblical uh, rationale for praise and for encouragement, particularly in the body of Christ. Uh, we need to recognize that the Bible speaks very clearly that in the one another's in the New Testament, there is a need and an expectation that brothers and sisters in Christ are encouraging one another. They were edifying one another. We just need to make sure, even as we look at this text, that we, we can differentiate the one another's from the me's and I's. The difference between the one another's is that you want to encourage and edify the person in front of you. The hypocrite and the Pharisee is going to want to make it about them and want to always be on the receiving end of encouragement, on the receiving end of praise uh, for their feelings, for their emotions, instead of fulfilling the one another's. And Jesus says, let me tell you, they have received their reward, right? There's a reality in which we recognize the pull and the gravitational force of being appreciated, and what Jesus is saying, if you're doing things just to be appreciated by others, you've missed the whole point of living for the Lord. Because when we live for the Lord, there's going to be a lot of things you're not going to be appreciated when it comes to what you do in the sight of others. And if you decide to only do the things where other people are going to appreciate you, you will find yourself in very short order doing very little that pleases God because you're doing very much that pleases other people. And that would be a hypocrite saying that you're living for the Lord when really your life amounts to 
appeasing and appealing to others' appetites so that they would honor you and esteem you when they should be esteeming God. And so Jesus says, don't expect any reward from your father. What you see is what you get. What you've garnered from public is your reward, and you shall receive nothing else. Might be worth noting, as we're talking about fasting, to uh, compare and contrast pharisaical fasting and genuine biblical fasting. Okay, uh, Pharisaical fasting is going to be a very public ordeal, which you, you must recognize if I'm fasting and making it public, I have gone out of my way to do it. Right? Unless all of your meals are drive-through meals, uh, you do a lot of your meal prep at home. You do a lot of your eating at home, which means people wouldn't know whether or not you were eating or not unless you were out in public making it obvious that you weren't doing that thing. So pharisaical fasting is a very public affair. Pharisaical fasting is full of self-gratification. I'm doing this, I'm using this as a means to gratify my flesh. I'm using this, and you think, well, what, what do you mean as a means to gratify myself? If I'm denying myself, am I, how can I gratify myself? Well, you realize there's a, there was a very big Greek uh, influence philosophy of that time that was all about denying yourself for self. And we do that even in our own culture, right? You ought to deny yourself from certain things, depending on which you know, lane of philosophy even you work through, even in our culture. There are a lot of philosophies that tell you, deny yourself for self. The best thing for you to do to reach self-actualization is also deny yourself of things that you would want. And so don't think this is even oxymoronic in our own culture, because we do deal in these kind of realities, even in 2023. And so it was very apparent, even in that time, that the Pharisees would deprive themselves of food for self-gratification. If I do without food, I get the food of praise from others. I get the food of being considered more pious and holy than I really am. Pharisaical fasting is self-dependent. It's about me. It's me depending on myself. It's me, as I'm doing without, what I'm really doing is leaning on my own laurels and my own ability to make sure I can make it throughout the day. And you know what? When I'm feeling down, I'll just step foot in public and people will look at me and tell me how great I am. It's going to give me just enough energy to make it to where I need to make it. And finally, pharisaical fasting depends and expects earthly rewards. We do things expecting something in return from those around us. We want to fast publicly so that we can receive public praise. The problem with that is it stands in contradistinction from genuine fasting that we see in Scripture. Uh, genuine fasting is a private affair. It's something that, that you and I, we would do before the Lord, unto the Lord, like many personal spiritual disciplines. They are not meant to be done publicly, but privately. Just like Jesus has brought up before when it comes to our prayer, personal prayer life, when it comes to our sacrificial giving financially, there's many of the spiritual disciplines that are personal and they ought to be done privately. There are other spiritual disciplines that are done corporately, like you're doing it right now. But what Jesus has in mind is the personal spiritual disciplines that we ought to make sure are private endeavors. Genuine fasting is going to be about self-denial and not self-gratification. It's about me denying myself and the things that I want and the things that would give me comfort and would give me the sustenance that I need to move forward to do the next thing that genuine fasting does and makes me God-dependent. If I'm going to be denying myself, I need to be depending on something else. And if you're a Pharisee, you're going to be dependent on praises for others to keep you going. And if you are fasting in a way that is biblical and godly, you're going to be fasting so that you can be, is what the definition of fasting is, 
intensely focused and depending on God. Right? There's your biblical definition of fasting. And then finally, biblical fasting is going to be looking forward to eternal realities and eternal rewards. Their minds aren't going to be focused on the here and now. Their attitudes aren't going to be looking at how they can garner praise from others, but how they can be pleasing to their Father who is in heaven, who will thus reward them for their faithfulness and their desire to grow in relationship with him. You see, the problem of the pharisaical fasting isn't necessarily in a lot, if you're, if you're not careful, what you can see, but the intent of the heart and the intent of the mind. The reality is the Pharisees were doing something a lot like everyone else was doing, but it was the intents of their heart, the motivations of their mind, that proved that their heart was not the Lord's and that they were out for themselves and not for the Lord. Now, Jesus proves that this actually came out by the way that they were acting, but it takes somebody who's willing to look intently at the motivation. Anyone who is looking at the way God's Word teaches us to fast and the way God's Word teaches us to pursue the personal spiritual disciplines, we would recognize there was something fishy, about the Pharisees. They were fishy Pharisees. And if they paid attention, they could see there's something not biblical about this. But for those who had a laissez-faire attitude about godliness, they would look at that and say, ooh, I must imitate that if that's what it means to look godly. And so really what we see in the Pharisees' life is a decisive pivot from a temporary, intensified focus and dependence on God to an intensified religious exercise focused on self. And we have got to recognize that that's the differentiation between the spiritual disciplines focused on God and the spiritual disciplines focused on self. When the spiritual disciplines become a long list of, I read through the Bible this year. I prayed 365 times this year. I fasted twice a week, as we'll see the Pharisees doing. When the spiritual disciplines become I, 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 me, 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 they lose the intent that God had always designed the spiritual disciplines to do, which would be to drive you to the cross, to drive you to depend on God, to drive you to the recognition of your own impotency when it comes to the Christian life, and to compel you to submit your life to God. You fasting, by definition, is a denial of self and a focus on God. And you can recognize the problem here when the Pharisees took something that was so precious to God and so precious to Christ as a tool for us to deny ourselves, to depend on God, and then the Pharisees to switch that and use it as an opportunity to garner praise from others, to depend on themselves so people could look at them and say, how awesome are you? When God says fasting is meant to show you how little are you and how great he is. You see the decisive pivot that makes this a hypocritical ambition for the Pharisees. And if we're going to keep from doing that ourselves, we've got to make sure that we deny our tendency for self-focused worship. That's point number one on your outline. I'd love you to write that down in the notes that we gave you. You need to deny your tendency for self-focused worship. And, and I get it. And you know what? I love this church. I love you guys. I see when it comes to the way that you serve the Lord, you serve the Lord wholeheartedly. I can look at some of your lives and recognize that you live, you're living holy for the Lord. But I also recognize what the Bible says about all of us, including myself. And we have a tendency to make things about us, even in subtle ways. And we've got to make sure, although that most of us 
aren't the boisterous, super loud people that make everything about them, that we have a tendency, even in the way that we serve the Lord, to adjust things and pivot things just slightly that we can make it about us. And to the untrained eye, we look like we're doing it for the Lord, but really we're just being really good actors. And if we really looked at the intention of the heart and the intent of the mind, we recognize that we have a tendency for self-focused worship. We have a tendency to even go to great lengths to make people think about us the way we want to be thought about. There's a lot of movies, I actually think the thinking of a movie in my mind right now, of individuals who literally beat themselves up, rub themselves through the dirt, uh, because they're in a situation that they don't want to be in. And if they go out after they beat themselves up and they look at the general public who's around them, they'll have pity for them, and it'll actually get them out of the situation that they were once in. You ever seen movies like that? Uh, And that person is going to great lengths to get people to think something about them that is patently false or at least not wholly true. Now, on one hand, it may get the person out of doing what they were once committed to doing. But most people are way more devious than that, if you have a mind like mine. You know what would be even more devious? To continue doing what you committed to in a state like that would make people think of you a lot better than you are. Can you imagine getting beat up and then going and doing your job? And you know what people would think about you? Look at that person. Look at that guy. Look at that gal. They just got the tar beat out of them outside. And they're in here serving our company. They're out here working like nothing happened. They got the snot beat out of them. And look at them. They're in here just doing better than 90% of the people in here. Isn't that still the intended result of the person's decisions? that they have become such a hypocrite that they are acting in a way that gets people to look at them the way that they want to be looked at, opposed to who they truly are. Now, this is also in the Bible called idolatry. The fact that you esteem yourself to a place where people pay attention to you opposed to God. And we got to ensure that we don't take any worship. And you recognize self-focused worship is the action given to idols, Worship of anything that is not God is idolatry. And so any self-focused worship, even a little self-focused worship, is idolatry. And we recognize that any idolatry, even the smallest amount of idolatry, is a breach of God's commands and a proof that we love ourselves more than we love God. We don't just talk about a little murder. He only murdered a little, right? He's only a little murder, right? It wasn't that. No, a murder is a murder, and idolatry is idolatry. We got to deny our tendency for self-focused worship. Or we're going to look a lot like the Pharisee in Luke 18. I'd love for you to turn there with me in your Bible to the Gospel of Luke in chapter 18. I love hearing you turn your Bibles. And some of you who click on your, your mouse, that's, that's, that's good too. Matthew 18. No, I'm sorry, Luke 18, starting there in verse 9. There in verse 9, Jesus tells this parable of some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Which isn't that, isn't that really the appeal of hypocrisy? I'm better than I am. I'm more pious than I am. I'm more righteous than I really am. Uh, And he said that he's talking about these kind of people who treated themselves as they were righteous and treated others with contempt. 
And it says in verse 10, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed this way. Now, I want you to notice something before I even say it. I want you to count how many times that he's either saying, I, 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 or me, 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 or making it seem like he's the one who is living in a righteous way. I want you to pay attention to this. God, I thank you that I am not like the other men. I'm not an extortioner. I'm not unjust. I'm not an adulterer. Or even like this tax collector over there. Good object lesson right there. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. I mean, did you, did you see that? I mean, even in his, and I would say, ultimate pride, as he comes to worship before God, he stands there and he points the finger at him and says, me. I, and I want you to recognize, you can do the spiritual disciplines with hypocrisy. He gave, he prayed, he fasted, he did all the good things. He went to church. As a matter of fact, he had a name on a pew. He went to church so much. And because he said, it's about me. All right, we, can be, we can be hypocrites and do all the right things, at least the right things with the wrong motives and intentions. But then notice in verse 13, the tax collector standing far off. He didn't want to be anywhere near those people who claimed to be righteous because he recognized that he wasn't righteous. He says, I, I'm a sinner. And he says, be merciful to me, a sinner. Do you see echoes of the Beatitudes right there that we have gone over a few months ago? God says, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. And we have here a tax collector who has a contrite heart and a broken spirit and recognizes his sin and he won't even look up because he is not worthy and says, be merciful to me, I am a sinner. The only thing that he accuses himself of is being the problem. The Pharisee accuses himself of being the solution. And anybody who says they're the solution and not the problem has a twisted view of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then Jesus says, I tell you, this man, he's talking there about the tax collector, went to his house justified rather than the Pharisee. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The wonderful thing that I know to be true about my Father who is in heaven uh, is that those who are walking in pride and arrogance will find themselves in very short order being humbled by the Lord. And I find that to be a true uh, generally, and I find that being true specifically in my own life. And it draws me to, uh, as the Holy Spirit is leading me, to live in ultimate humility on a regular basis. Because if I don't live in humility, God will place me in humility. And that is one of the patently uh, false realities of the Pharisees, that they think that they can live an exalted lifestyle and not be brought low by God. Uh, and we know that, and that's why we want to deny our tendency for self-focused worship. So how do we apply that? Well, at least as we look at this, we're saying, Jesus says, don't be gloomy. Don't disfigure your face as you're living for him. And some of you may not be fasting. Uh, I'm not against fasting. I think fasting is a great spiritual discipline. I don't think it's a primary spiritual discipline. I think there are spiritual disciplines that are primary. Bible reading, uh, community uh, prayer, those kind of things, primary, more primary spiritual disciplines. But fasting is a great uh, tool that God uses for you to use as a discipline to grow closer to him. Uh, but as we talk about even other spiritual disciplines here, you know, what does it look like for us not to look gloomy as we're partaking in the spiritual disciplines? Well, when you, imagine this, and all of us have been there, right? You've had a long week. You have a long week at work. And we talk about that a lot. Hey, how you been doing this week? 
So did you get a lot done this week? Did you have a lot going on at work? I'm like, well, it's good to have you here. Thank you. It's the definition of looking gloomy as you're, you know, you recognize that community and life groups, that's a corporate spiritual discipline. And so many of us, we, we look like the Pharisees when we show up to something like life group or dinner at a church family's house or, or what have you. And we walk in and we want to wear it on our face just how faithful we've been to the Lord today. Like, like you hear it from me from the pulpit. I love when people, I love it when men, husbands, when you work your socks off at work. And you're over there and you just come home and you're beat down, exhausted. Amen. You should work that hard. That is your job. That is your stewardship. Okay. But when you do, and I guess later on the sermon, I want to preach it right now. But come on. Like Jesus literally says it. Stop looking gloomy. When I'm a life group leader of two life groups. And uh, I'm guilty of it. And I know there's many people in my life group are guilty of it. We walk through the door and we're like, how can I look just gloomy enough for people to pay attention to me, but not gloomy enough so I can make a scene, you know? Because <laughs> they, like, they want attention, but they don't want all of that, you know? And I'm just, we look and we're just like, oh, I just had a hard day. Can you tell me, I, can you tell me I, I'm good, that I, I'm, here, I'm here? Like, you're lucky that I'm here tonight, you know? Like, you're blessed to have me, you know? <laughs> And it's like, okay, let's look at this scripture and say, man, doesn't this not apply to us? That when we partake in the spiritual disciplines, even the corporate spiritual disciplines, that we come in here and we don't have gloomy faces. That we are prepared for what God would have us either have from him or to give to others through encouragement and community living. All right. I got way more, but I'll stop there. All right. Our temptation here with point number one is going to be to take everything that we're doing for the Lord and make it about ourselves, right? And this is where the subtle realities of hypocrisy seep into our lives. We do things for the Lord. I mean, I'm looking here, I'm like, man, I just love who I see. I see what you do for the Lord, but I think there is the temptation of even the most, the most sanctified saints in this room is you know people see you. You know that it's not just God who sees you. And even the most sanctified saint in here recognizes that I'm only doing this for the Lord, but I'm, I'm not ridiculous. I mean, I'm up here right now preaching this sermon, and everyone's just staring at me, you know? And so I, I recognize, and the tendency is to just, just a little bit, just, just a one degree, just figure out how to make it about me just enough. And then there you are, in idolatry, making it about you, self-focused worship. And we're going to be tempted to make it about us. And Jesus says, Make this about who it's always been about, and it's me. And instead of uh, looking gloomy, instead of making things focused on self, Jesus teaches us how to turn our attention away from us, at least practically speaking, which is what I love about what Jesus does. He makes it practical. It's not ethereal. It's not nebulous. It's not somewhere floating in the dark matter of the universe. He's given us some real things to do here. As we persevere in the spiritual disciplines, he tells us, here's how you ought to do it. As you're, as you're sacrificing for the Lord, as you're, as you're persevering, as you're struggling through the spiritual disciplines, here's what you do in verse 17. He says, when you fast, or any spiritual discipline that takes, which most of them do, great struggle, great commitment. He says, you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. Now, I don't want you to attach some overwhelming spiritual meaning uh, to this text, particularly where it says, anoint your head. You know, I, I recognize, particularly in the Old Testament, very few times in the New Testament, we have, uh, we have anoint their head, and it's always either anoint a king or a leader, uh, or even you see it a little bit in the book of James. Uh, but you need to recognize 
they put a spiritual meaning on it because it had a literal meaning on it, okay? And to anoint your head would be me telling you to take a bath, right? That's what it do. That's what it does. Here's why. To anoint your head in all scripture was a thing of purification, a thing of cleanliness, a thing of hygiene. Now you recognize why they would attach spiritual meaning to that, wouldn't you? That as they are then pouring the oil to anoint a king, it was to show that they are clean and purified and prepared for the work that is ahead. Did you see that? You now recognize the significance of the spiritual meaning because you recognize the actual literal meaning of being the anointed, right, of, in the Old Testament. But here, Jesus is reminding us, and, and the people of that time would have known this without the explanation, when Jesus says, anoint your head and wash your face, Jesus is just telling them normal hygiene practices. As you fast, go clean up. Wash your face, wash your hands, put oil on your face, which in, even in the Bible, right, oil was used for medicinal purposes, cosmetic purposes, cleanliness purposes. And he's saying, take some of that oil and rub it on there. You need to get out there and you need to look like you're not fasting, is what Jesus is saying, because it's a personal spiritual discipline. It's not a means for you to make everything about you. I can show you a little bit of that background. As we look at the Mishnah, which if you've been around, you know what this is, but the Mishnah is the oral tradition of the Jews that had been codified later in history, uh, which is interesting enough because uh, almost all of Scripture... Uh, at, some, at one time or another, was oral tradition, and then it was written down over time. And so what you need to know about the Mishnah is it's a non-canonical, which means it's not in our Bible. It's not something you and I read and use authoritatively. But the Mishnah was something that the Jews used uh, that were interpretations of God's law and God's rules and God's roles in the Old Testament and throughout the Torah and interpreted it for their daily living. And some of it was closely interpreted from the Old Testament. Some of it was loosely and not even interpreted from the Old Testament. It was just traditions that they had instilled in the culture of the time. So it'd be a, a lot of it, some of it, would be uh, like in our culture when there's people who know the Bible and live it out, and then there's also a lot of people you know who have religious thoughts about the Bible and have religious thoughts about church, and they try to live it out as closely as they can without actually obeying the, the Word of God. You, you understand? So the Mishnah, although not entirely, it can be usefully thought of like that. It was just an oral tradition that uh, rabbis would use to teach the people uh, their interpretations of the Bible. Some of it loosely related to the Bible, some of it more closely related to the Bible. I say that because when Jesus says, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, you have no idea how much this pushed against the grain of what they were taught a good Jew was supposed to do. Because this is what the Mishnah says. And they are forbidden on a fast. So when, when they fast, this is what they were taught. When you fast, you are forbidden to work, to bathe, to anoint, to put on sandals, and to have sexual relations, and lock the bathhouses. Okay, now, do you, see the, do you see the color kind of come out of this text? When Jesus says, go anoint your head and wash your face. Because when people were doing the spiritual discipline of fasting in that time, they stunk, right? They were dirty, they were nasty. I mean, you saw them coming from a mile away. And if they wanted to make it about themselves, it was not very difficult because they stuck out like a sore thumb. And Jesus says, that is not what my father had in mind 
when it came to fasting for the purpose of intensified focus and dependence on him. You are intensifying a focus on you. And God had never meant for it to be that. So here's a really good example of the oral tradition just going way, way out of the way of not obeying what Scripture says about fasting. And so here you have the mission of it says, let yourself go. Make a public showing of what you're going through. Make sure people notice you, that you're going through this. And you have Jesus saying, go take care of yourself. Go wash your face. Go put some oil on, you know. Go make sure that you're, you, go make sure you look presentable, right? We're not being hypocrites, but you recognize that, right? Isn't that being hypocritical? Don't I feel worse than that? You recognize it's not hypocritical for a Christian to present themselves in a way that is normal because it's indicative of the Christian to always live in a self-denying way. Did you, did you follow that? The Bible literally says, take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow Christ. That is just the normal Christian life. So if Every day, as I'm denying myself, I'm always going to feel ways that aren't always the best. I'm always going to feel like not taking care of myself today. If I'm really, as Paul says, being spent and expended for the gospel of Jesus Christ, there's going to be a lot of days I don't want to do this. I would rather go do this. I don't want to look good today. I don't want to present myself in a way that honors the Lord today. I don't want to go to life group. I don't want to go to church. You you recognize the the self-deprecating, if you will, or the or the self-denial aspect of being a Christian means that either I'm going to deny myself like a hypocrite but yet show it to everybody all the time and those people feel pity for me every single day or I'm going to recognize it's part of the Christian life to deny myself and to walk faithfully understanding that the Lord understands and knows where you're at and you have a responsibility and a stewardship to walk after the Lord holy unto him. You're not supposed to draw attention to yourself. This is literally what Jesus is saying. Anoint your head, wash your face. Normal hygiene practices as you're doing personal spiritual disciplines. It would be great to teach your teenagers. You can take a shower, you can anoint your head, and you can't blame God for, for why you shouldn't. <laughs> when it comes to these spiritual disciplines like fasting and other self-denying acts of worship, it's important as Christians that we present ourselves ordinarily. And that's point number two. Present yourself Ordinarily. I know that's an interesting point, but I hope you see and understand the significance here. Our job isn't to show the world all the things we're going through in our personal relationship with God, particularly in the world, in in the realm of self-denial. I know you're tired. I know you got a lot going on. But God said he will sustain you. He will keep you. God said that he's going to empower you through the work of his Holy Spirit to accomplish the work that he has given to you. I mean, Ephesians 2.10 says it, that we are, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works that he's prepared beforehand for you to do. Like, you recognize that we have the God of the universe. He's going to give us some pretty big work, all right? I mean, he's got, he's got children down here. He wants to put them to work. And if he's going to put us to work, it would stand to reason that some of it's going to be some pretty substantial work. So there's going to be a lot of days where I'm being a good steward at my house and I'm making disciples, and I'm going to be just pretty tired. I'm be pretty exhausted. And then I've got to do all my spiritual disciplines. How does he expect me to do all this? Through his power, not your own. I want you to see this in a good example. that You can even do this, and I want to muddy this up a little bit for you because sometimes I like to just make us think hard. You can do this even in the midst of recent sin in your life. Okay, I want to show you that as you turn to 2 Samuel. Turn to 2 Samuel 12. 2 Samuel 12. If you graduated Sunday school, you kind of probably know where I'm going here. 2 Samuel we have a great situation here where King David 
has found himself in a, just a dreadful situation. And he sees a great opportunity here and a great reason to go to the Lord in fasting, which I find just a wonderful uh, commitment of David, even in the midst of his sin, to say, hey, I want to do this. I, I want to I focus on the Lord and not myself and not my sin. So there in 12, starting in verse 15, as you're flipping there, you need to recognize that this is after David committed adultery with Bathsheba, after he took Uriah, Bathsheba's wife, and put him on the front lines near the archers at the wall and then told the whole army to retreat back. And so now you have the archers not only murdering Uriah, but also other valiant men of God who have enlisted into the Lord's army. And then you have him also committing adultery and taking a wife that was not his. So we have him being an adulterer, a murderer, and just an all-around bad political leader, okay? And this is his response. Oh, well, and I should add, Bathsheba was found to be pregnant with David's child, and God had promised to afflict that child so that child would die in the womb uh, as a judgment unto David for his sin. And so there in verse 15, it says, And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. I want you to pay attention to this. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat the food with them. I want you to notice something. As David, even in the midst of great sin and despair and affliction, which even in the Old Testament is most of the time when you see people fasting, when there's affliction, uh, when there's repentance needed, when there's great sin against God, they'll fast and they'll go to the Lord. Uh, and you see David here focusing on God. Did you notice there are other people around him who want to help him, who want to give him pity, who want to give him comfort? And in his spiritual discipline of fasting, what do you notice that he does? He said he does not eat with them. He does not focus on them. They're trying to raise him up off the ground, and he had nothing to do with it. He said, this is a personal spiritual discipline between me and God. I have sinned against God and God alone. This fast is between me and God alone because it's a personal spiritual discipline. Now, on the seventh day... The child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. It's because he was doing his spiritual disciplines. How can we say to him that the child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were worshiping together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. I want you to notice what David does, which is indicative of somebody whose heart is right unto the Lord, even though that he has recent sin in his life. But when David saw, they said he is, and then David arose, listen to this, he arose from the earth, washed and anointed himself, and changed his clothes, and he went into the house of the Lord, and he worshiped. And he went down to his own house, and when he was asked, they set before him food, and he ate. Did you notice something there? After his agreement, if you will, after his time that he had committed unto the Lord for the circumstance that he was in was up. He did not use the opportunity, which he had. Can you imagine the situation he was in? There's a lot of people that are going to have pity for the man. There's a lot of people that are going to have great concern uh, for, for his life. He just lost his, his, his child in the womb. He's going through a really hard time. And he could have really lengthened that out, right? get up all nasty and stinky and dirty from his fast, and he's really hungry. I mean, he had a really great opportunity as the king of Israel to say, come make this about me now. Let's all focus on me because I'm going through this time. I'm, I have sin in my life, but look, I'm being faithful too in this fasting. So you guys recognize, come around me. But I want you to notice what he did. His heart was after the Lord, and he said, 
the time of my fast is over. I'm going to get up. I'm going to go take a shower, right, in our language, right? Take a shower. I'm going to get dressed. I'm going to wash up. I'm going to make sure that I'm ready to go. I'm, going to, I'm now going to continue on with my life because this was between me and God, not me to get attention from everyone else around me. And I want you to see even how surprising this was even uh, in, in that time. Uh, in verse 21, uh, the servant said to him, What is this that you've done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you rose and ate food. And David said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. I want you to notice something. Even there, David's focus was on the Lord. Maybe the Lord will be gracious. Not about me. Like Maybe the longer I stay in this fast, the more people feel sorry for me. It was, no. Focused on what the Lord would do. But now, in verse 23, he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Even in the death of uh, David's son in the womb, he recognized that God would still have mercy and ultimate grace on him to return them together at his death. But I want you to see this because I want you to recognize even David, after he was done fasting, presented himself ordinarily. Right? That is just what faithful believers do in the midst of their personal spiritual disciplines where there is self-denial involved. Our job isn't to make a spectacle of ourselves. It is to bring ultimate glory and honor to God. And this brings me back to the application I was giving you earlier. I know you work hard. I know you work hard. I know you're fruitful. I know you're powerful. I know you're Whether it's at work, whether it's at work, but home with your family. being a kind of husband uh, who maybe works long days, God-honoring, Christ-exalting labor. And when you get home, you need to anoint your head, you need to wash your face, and you need to start ministering to your family that God gave you. You need to make sure that you're going home, that you don't get to go home and open the door and say, Honey, it's just been a really long day. And she's got 18 kids hanging on her, you know. And she's like, Tell me more, honey. Uh, And... You recognize, oh, it's your turn to serve me. I've had a long day. Look at me. Look, I'm doing the Lord's work. I'm being a husband who's bringing home the bacon. It's like go home with the bacon and serve your family with it. And I don't say that just to you. I say that to myself. It's a convicting sermon for me to recognize that whatever it is, if I'm going to life group after a brutal day at work or a brutal day at home with the kids, I recognize that I still have a job. Go anoint your head. Go wash your face. Go change your clothes and get to life group and encourage the people in your small group. That is, that is just our job. That's our, we call that our stewardship. This is just our stewardship. Uh, in, as, and I would argue that it is a spiritual discipline to work hard. It's a spiritual discipline to work as unto the Lord and not for man. That's why I can tell you it's a spiritual discipline because the Bible says this is how you do this. If there's a way in which you ought to do this, then you can call it a spiritual discipline because it's meant to bring glory to God as you do it unto obedience to the Lord. And so even that spiritual discipline, recognize that you both have to work hard and then go home, go to life group, be in your community in a way where you present yourself ordinarily and not, not presenting yourself extraordinarily in a way to garner attention from others. Why do we do this? What's the motivation? What's the foundation to all this? Just look at verse 18. You've got to remember who your audience is. That's what Jesus does here in Matthew 6 and 18. That you're fasting, as you're doing these things, as you've anointed your head, you've washed yourself, you have normal hygiene practices, you're presenting yourself ordinarily opposed to extraordinarily, uh, so that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. 
really I want you to sum up the point like this, point number three. You need to keep your original audience in mind. Keep your original audience in mind. I've said this throughout the sermon series, but you have to recognize as Christians we have an audience of one. And sure, there are other people around us. As a matter of fact, Jesus says this earlier in the Sermon on the Mount. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now here's an important contrast and distinction to make when it comes to letting your good works and your light shine before others that your Father would give glory or that that they would give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The only way you're going to do that is if you understand that you have an audience of one. The only way that anything that you would be done, that anything that you do would be done to give glory to God would be that you're doing it for him alone and not for all the other people around you. The only way that people would give glory to God and not to you is that you're doing it in a way as not to receive the glory, that he would receive the glory. So these aren't uh, opposed to each other. They're not dynamically opposed. They are complementary, helping us recognize that we are to do many of the things in our life to display our obedience to God, that people would worship God because of it. But we have to recognize that even as we do those things, it's because we want to direct people to God and not to ourselves. And so anytime that we do focus worship on ourselves, the only, when we do present ourselves extraordinarily, we are forgetting who in the world we're here for. we got to remember that we're here for an audience of one. I don't have the time to flip there, but you can jot down Daniel 9, verses 3 through 17. And if you know your Bible and your Old Testament, uh, we are about 70 years after uh, the southern kingdom of Judah had been exiled by Babylon. And Jeremiah the prophet had made a promise uh, that God had made through Jeremiah to the southern kingdom that in 70 years you will be freed from exile by a king that I have chosen. And so up at this point of 70 years, Daniel is looking at the landscape. He's seeing the Babylonian kingdom going down, and he sees the Medo-Persian kingdom just just coming in. Uh, And then King Darius had then taken over and conquered Babylon in 70 years. Okay, And so what you see as Daniel is noticing what God is doing And he's saying, we're about to be freed. We're about to be liberated from the hands of Babylon uh, by the hands of uh, the king of Persia. Now, this is important to recognize if you read the text, which I hope you do later, that what Daniel does, he he didn't run and say, yeah, King Darius, I'm glad you're here. I knew you were coming. God's word told me you were coming. Uh, And I'm here for it. Uh, He said instead, he dropped to his knees began worshiping God, began fasting, uh, and began exclaiming and proclaiming the goodness and faithfulness of God. And through that time and through that prayer, he says, greater you, you're kind, you're patient, you're forgiving, you're faithful to your promises. And he says, we deserve the ridicule, we deserve the blame, we deserve destruction, but you, to you is honor, to you is glory. And even in his fasting, I want you to notice this, he's about to be liberated, which you're like, well, what's your point here? If you were in a situation like that and you were about to get liberated, you would give honor and glory to Darius, right? We'd be tempted to, right? To give honor and glory to Darius because he's the one that's coming. Persia's coming to rescue us. But it takes somebody who is keenly aware of God's kingdom and God's rule and God's plan and God's word who would recognize as he sees the landscape before him evolving in his eyes to look and to recognize somebody who has a relationship with God, who knows what God's doing, to recognize This isn't Darius who's coming to save us. 
It is God who had promised to use Persia as a means to liberate his people and to free them and send them back to the promised land. But it takes someone who is felt focused on God, on his kingdom, who isn't self-focused. Because somebody who is self-focused would have never responded the way that Daniel did. And we've got to recognize that, that us, ourselves, we've got to keep the original audience in mind. I love it. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, chaos. I mean, if you are in that land, odds are you lost your farm because they destroyed it. Your family may be, a little, may be separated temporarily or at worst, maybe forever. You, if you're focusing on you and yourself in that time, you just have no idea what's going on, nor do you see any light at the end of the tunnel, nor do you see that anything is going to turn out for the good of you because you're being about yourself. But Daniel says, wait a minute, I see what God's doing. He promised he's going to do this. I can have great faith right now because I remember that my audience isn't the Babylonians, the Persians, Darius, Nebuchadnezzar. It's God. And I'm recognizing that as I've spent time with God, focusing on God, that he's doing something in this moment of my life uh, that I can apply by being faithful, by focusing on him, not pretending like the world's ending, but recognizing that God is utilizing this opportunity uh, for greater faithfulness on my part. I hope you see the connection here as we look at this, that when you're fasting, do it not to be seen by others. Your Father sees in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. There's a reality that if you're going to be a Pharisee when it comes to fasting, it's always going to be about you. It's always going to be, woe is me. I can't believe I'm in this situation. I can't believe this is going on in my life. And even when you love the Lord and you're living for the Lord, it's still, oh man, this is hard working for the Lord this week. Oh man, it's just difficult serving so hard this week. Oh man, I gave this month, but boy, it was hard. You know, it's like, okay, all right. Like, you have it, you would, have, you would, if that were you, I, I suppose it's none of you in here, right? Uh, that you would have a wrong disposition towards God sees the secret things and knows them. You, if that were, would be you or I, that would mean that we don't put our trust in God seeing the secret things because we want to make them public so other people know them too. That we receive our comfort and our accolades from people and not from God. And all I want to do is kind of point you to Daniel as, as a character example of saying the more you know God, the more you know God's character, his promises, his plan, and his kingdom. And then paired with that, like Daniel did, the more you recognize your insufficiency, your impotency, your, your, own, uh, your own proclivity to not measure up, the more you're going to be satisfied in having the attention of the God of the universe, and the more that you're not going to be satisfied with receiving the attention from people. And I want to leave with you on this one point. To recognize having the right attitude about this text that your father sees you and will reward you for it. I mean, one of the biggest desires for people is that somebody would notice us. And I want you to recognize you have a God of the universe who has bent down his ear attuned to your needs and his eyes constantly on you who desires to be with you, to know you, and to remind you that he is there. Your great desire to have somebody who needs you and wants you when you focus on yourself, you're going to forget that there is a God who meets all of that. If you will pay attention to him, seek his kingdom and his righteousness. Let's pray. God, I pray that in some way, in some manner, that this sermon would be fruitful in the advancement of your kingdom here in New Braunfels. I pray that as we think about the spiritual disciplines, that we think about even how many of them require 
a lot of uh, self-denial, that we wouldn't even by one degree uh, turn our spiritual disciplines into an opportunity to glory in ourselves, an opportunity for us to prioritize us, to get people to, to look at me and to praise me for how holy I am, uh, but that I would be and that we would be God-dependent completely upon you. I pray that, God, as we apply this sermon, it would transform the way that we commune together in life groups, informally through our church and men's and women's ministry, that, that we would recognize it's not about us, that we can show up, we can have our hands washed, we can have our, our heads anointed with oil, because at the end of the day, it's not about us. We want to show up in the best way possible to be an encouragement and to glean from your word God, and to give glory unto you. And I pray that that would just be the heart of our church as we continue growing and celebrating almost two years of being a lampstand. We pray that you, in the next two years, God, would uh, God, grow us so much more we, that we would, uh, God, by your good grace, expand your kingdom here in the hill country. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.